Our text this morning is rich, and it will reward our careful attention. So I invite you to put on your thinking caps. Uh, Remember, I was a professor, so that part didn't leave when the pastor moved in. Please listen for the word of God as I read Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Brothers and sisters, we have confidence that we can enter the Holy of Holies by means of Jesus' blood through a new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, which is his body. And we have a great high priest over God's house. Therefore, let's draw near with a genuine heart with the certainty that our faith gives us since our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies are washed with pure water. Let's hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering because the one who made the promises is reliable. And let us consider each other carefully for the purpose of sparking love and good deeds. Don't stop meeting together with other believers, which some people have gotten into the habit of doing. Instead, encourage each other, especially as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Now, we are jumping in near the end of this letter. It's... uh, it's a long letter, it's 13 chapters is the way it's presented to us, and, and we're in chapter 10 today. So I'm going to give you just a little bit of background to frame that for you. Um, we don't know who wrote this long letter, and that's unusual because almost every New Testament letter begins in its very first sentence stating the author, and therefore the letter to the Hebrews is, is a bit of a mystery. Who wrote this? And there's been a lot of speculation. People have come down firmly on one or the other saying, I know who it is. Nobody knows. And uh, 2,000 years of scholarship has not revealed the answer. It's okay. We don't know. Lots of ideas. But we know some other things. Um, We don't know who exactly the audience was. We don't know where they lived. It's not like letter to the Hebrews who live in Jerusalem. It doesn't say that. It just says to the Hebrews. So we don't know who wrote it, and we don't know who the people are that were intended recipients. But here's some things we do know from the the letter itself, what we call internal evidence. First, the writer knows the readers. They are friends. That comes out clearly. And the writer knows that they are followers of Jesus and that they had heard about Jesus from people who knew Jesus personally. So this is definitely a first century document. Second, the readers had a very strong interest in Jewish heritage. Um, Not especially because they came from Jewish heritage, but there was a strong interest in that heritage especially angels and Moses and the priesthood and the whole sacrificial system. And so the letter deals with some of those, comparing them for their values to who Jesus is. We know that they were a very well-educated population and because 
The letter is written in a very high style of Greek rhetoric. It's challenging Greek, and it's challenging thinking. Uh, so sometimes it's hard slugging for us to go through the letter to Hebrews. It doesn't read as easily as the Gospel of John, for instance. So the audience was well-educated and good-thinking people. Finally, we know that they've been going through some tough times. Um, and as a result, some are wavering in their faith. And perhaps they're wondering whether it's worth it to just keep on going. Keep pursuing the way of Jesus. They're wondering. And that's why this letter is written. We don't know exactly why they're wavering and wondering. Um, there's possible things. I'll give you four of them. One, they probably were just tired of state-sponsored persecution. Christianity was considered in the first century a fringe and unsanctioned religion. It wasn't formal, it wasn't around a long time, and so it made them an easy target for the official structures of society. Then again, some were probably tired of tension with their Jewish relatives or their pagan relatives and family members and neighbors and business partners because they had chosen the way of following Jesus and their friends and neighbors and family members hadn't. And there was tension. And you can get tired of that. It's hard to keep up, keep going. Well, and then there were those that came from a Jewish background who were very attracted to the Jewish faith, perhaps, and they may have been feeling they missed the elaborate, beautiful annual festivals and liturgies and, and the deep history of that Jewish tradition. And maybe they were thinking, I'd like to go back to that. Christian worship is kind of simple by comparison. So we, we feel this in the letter. And some were no doubt disappointed and discouraged because Jesus hadn't come back yet. And they were expecting Jesus to show up in a few years. They were impatient to have their expectations filled. So we can identify, can't we? It's not hard to become discouraged in, in our faith. Our culture in North America doesn't actually persecute us in spite of what some say. Um, if you want to know about persecution, read about the church around the world. But our culture also doesn't do much to encourage us in the ways of faith. So we can feel a little bit marginalized. We can feel alone in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, because we feel sometimes we're the only one in that place following Jesus. And we can feel out of touch, or some tension there. And to be honest, for some people, Jesus pure and simple is not enough. They're looking for Jesus plus. And granted, I, you know, I want to say maybe this is, I understand the motivation. Jesus and stuff to make Jesus even better. Well, Jesus plus uh, higher education, or Jesus plus political passion, or Jesus plus just plain old hard work. And then there are people, I had a friend who wandered in this direction. She began selecting things from other religions. She wanted to make a customized personal religion. And Jesus, just plain old Jesus, was maybe not good enough. 
I had a long conversation with her. <laughs> and let's be honest, almost all of us are impatient to have our expectations fulfilled. I prayed about it. I want my prayer answered. So we're a lot like the people that this letter was written to, and in his introduction to Hebrews in the message, our friend Eugene Peterson wrote this. Our well-intentioned efforts to get it all together for God can very well get in the way of what God is doing for us. The main and central action is everywhere and always what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do for us. Jesus is the revelation of that action. Our response is the act of faith. By the way, I recommend the message uh, for reading Hebrews. Hebrews is, I say, that even in Greek it's tough, and in English it's tough. So uh, Eugene Peterson did us a great favor in rendering it uh, in a very readable fashion. So we're going to dive in in chapter 10. And at this point, the letter is highlighting Jesus as the unique high priest over the household of God. Brandon mentioned that the Jewish priests continually brought sacrifices to the altar of the temple. And this was based in Mosaic law. These sacrifices symbolized people's longing to bridge the gap between them and a holy God, and that was a big gap. So sacrifices were continual. And then once a year, as Brandon said, the priest who was that year's designated high priest, with fear and trembling, would pass through this heavy curtain to enter into that innermost room called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. No one ever dared to enter that place except on that one occasion once a year. And there that high priest would offer a sacrifice involving the blood of some animals to atone for his own sins and those of the people. It was a high and holy moment, and the people waiting outside waited with bated breath. This was a time of atonement. Thanks be to God. But even as he was in there offering that sacrifice, he and everyone on the outside knew that the relief that it would bring was fleeting because it would have to be done again the next year and again the, the year after that and again and again forever. This letter to the Hebrews says that Jesus took on the role of the high priest as none before him had ever done. And stunningly, he offered himself as the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. His own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all by means of his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. That's in Hebrews 9, right before this text. If you want to read Hebrews 7, 8, and 9, that extended argument is tucked into those chapters. Jesus, as this high priest, bridged the gap that no one else had ever done. 
and the redemption he secured is one that goes on forever. The need for the annual festival of atonement is finished. But then it gets even more amazing. We come to this text in Hebrews 10. It says, since we have confidence to... Pardon me, <clears throat> dry mouth. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain. Wait, what? Wait? What did this writer just say? Since we have confidence to enter the holy of holies? What? That's a stunning. We can go anytime into the place where only the high priest ever dared to enter, and that only once a year in awe and fear, aware of his own unworthiness to be there. And now the writer says we, just us, can go to that place. The writer is saying that Jesus, as our permanent high priest, has made a way by his life and death and resurrection through that curtain which symbolized our separation from God. And the writer says it's a new and a living way. This is the phrase which drew me into this text. What does that mean? A new and a living way. It's new in that it's unprecedented. No one ever before created a way for plain, simple, ordinary, sinful people like us to enter into this presence of God. It always had to be mediated by sacrifices and priests, others doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, and that's where Jesus stood. He came in. It is a living way because the risen Christ is alive and he is keeping it open for us. New life flows through that opening. The sacrifice for sin is done forever. He finished it, and he has propped the door open for us to follow. Because of Jesus, we are invited into the very presence of the one who made us and knows us and wants the best for us. This transforms our understanding of prayer and of worship. We, simple, ordinary us, we are welcome in the presence of God. Jesus is saying to the Father, they're with me. They're my friends. In fact, they're my brothers and my sisters. They're part of our family. Come on in. The writer continues, and since we have a great high priest over the household of God, and what he means here, Christ is not only the high priest, but as the son and the heir of the father, he exercises authority over the household, God's own household, which is the church. This church, but the whole church throughout history and everywhere Christians gather as the church. Jesus, as the high priest, exercises authority over the church. The church is the sphere of his activity. And because the way that he has created is a new and living one, Christians, that's us, we are members of that household, we have the freedom to act boldly. To act with confidence, says the text, 
And the word also means to act with authority. We can act with authority to take risks in extending the frontiers of the kingdom of God, to bring justice into places of darkness, to offer forgiveness where it just doesn't make sense, to be generous when our culture says, watch out for number one. Because the church is the sphere of Christ's activity as high priest, the church cannot ever be a dull or boring place, a dull or boring community. Sometimes we forget this. But friends, where Christ is, something is always happening. Where Christ is, life is being called into being in ourselves. Hurts are being healed, relationships are being reconciled, people are being called and equipped and commissioned for ministries. And that's you and me. We're not a passive bunch sitting around waiting to be blessed. We're a mission-minded people on a move, on the move, in, in a movement. Because we are confident, says the text, that our worship is acceptable that we ourselves are acceptable. We also know that when we step out in confidence and obedience to the Spirit's prompting, we will be supported. About a week ago, I got an email with a link to an amazing story. I'm gonna briefly share it with you. The title was Creating Reconciliation and Healing from Rwanda to South Sudan. Rwanda has just marked the 25th anniversary of the 1994 genocide in which 800,000 Tutsis were killed by a majority Hutu population, their own neighbors. How does a nation recover from a genocide, neighbor on neighbor? I want to tell you that Christians are involved. A group of Christians from South Sudan, a neighboring nation, recently traveled to Rwanda. Now since its birth just eight years ago as a nation, South Sudan has suffered internal strife and more than 50,000 people have died in this tension and this problem, neighbor on neighbor. What do you do? The visitors came from South Sudan to Rwanda seeking resources. They came from a theological college, a Christian college in South Sudan, and from a Christian group called Reconcile, which is an acronym for the Resource Center for Civil Leadership. Reconcile seeks to bring peace and healing to communities that have been broken and are hurting from decades of war. That's a challenge. Are you ready to step into those shoes? Reconcile offers a three-month institute to leaders from throughout South Sudan to strengthen their skills in resolving conflict and helping their communities recover from trauma. And they wanted to know how the Christians in Rwanda had helped that happen. 
The Institute is modeled on one born in the Rwandan crisis in the aftermath of it. The Rwandan church is still recovering and helping their nation recover. They are learning the way of Jesus in reconciliation and love so that they can move forward together, neighbor and neighbor. And now the Rwandan church is sharing what they've learned with the church in South Sudan. That's on the other side of the world. But wherever Christ is followed, something is always happening. Life is being called into being out of death. Hurts are being healed that no one thought possible. Relationships are being reconciled. People are being called and equipped and commissioned for ministry. Wherever Jesus is honored as Christ. It's happening in South Sudan and in Rwanda. I could tell you another story about the church in Iran. I don't have time for it, but it's a burgeoning church of all places because Christ is present. And it's happening here. May God give us eyes and ears to recognize what God is doing in our communities and the courage to join him in those activities. Because this new and living way has been opened for us and because the risen Christ continually serves as our high priest, the writer then tells us, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Because of Jesus, he says, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to hide. We don't need to stay on the other side of the curtain. We won't be judged. We won't be made to feel guilty or unworthy. Faith brings us the full assurance that we are acceptable, that we have been made clean. The junk in our lives has been taken care of. And this confidence is not a feeling. It's, it's not dependent on my feeling that way. It's a fact outside of myself. It doesn't depend on my effort, but solely on the fully sufficient work of Jesus. Therefore, says the writer, we can draw boldly near to God. And not only in prayer and worship, but also in ministries. And we're all ministers, all of us in this room. In our actions and our choices regarding our time and our money and our energies and our careers and our retirements and our families. Make bold choices, he says, because you've got the Holy Spirit with you. We can be bold. Based on the new and living way that's been opened for us and Jesus serving as our high priest, the writer further says, let us hold without swerving to the hope that we profess because he who promised is faithful. In other words, the hope is not in us either. It's not a feeling. It's not about being optimistic. It's not about being wishful. It's not about trying harder to feel stronger and more hopeful. Biblical hope is an objective reality. It's based in what Jesus has finished. That's the hope. It's not about me feeling hopeful. And if we are confident in what Jesus has accomplished, we can also be confident in what he has promised, says the writer. Life abundant, joy that spills over onto other people who don't expect it. Strength to meet every challenge. Life can still be scary and throw us curves. 
But fear takes a way back seat when this kind of hope is up front. So the letter tells us to hang on with a firm grip to the hope that Jesus has given us. Now, I have a friend at Warm Beach Camp. She's a fellow volunteer with me. Fourteen years ago, in her mid-40s, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. MS is a progressive disease of the central nervous system. There is no cure. She ultimately had to leave her job in banking because she no longer had the stamina for the daily work. Her, her balance is unsteady. She's much younger than I am, but she walks with a cane. And in fact, she falls down frequently. But she's joyful, and she will tell you that God is good all the time. Well, a year ago, Worm Beach Camp began a new program called Therapeutic Horsemanship. The primary aim is to help kids who struggle in various ways. It's a marvelous program. The director, a woman named Ginger, has 30 years of professional training in therapeutic horsemanship, and Ginger is fantastic. She invited my friend with MS, who walks with a cane and falls down, to try therapeutic horsemanship. And my friend, who tells her innermost thoughts to me sometimes, she said, she's crazy. What? Me? Get up on a huge horse with no saddle and do balance exercises? Are you crazy? She said to Ginger. But Ginger persisted in encouraging my friend to try this. Ginger is persuasive. My friend has now been riding for a year, every week, just one hour a week. She says it is the best thing she has ever tried since her diagnosis. And her physical therapist and her neurologist concur. Now, Ginger is a tough coach. She challenges my friend every week to take a further bold risk, to do something my friend doesn't think she can do. Ginger knows what my friend can do next, even if it seems crazy. My friend is now doing vaulting moves. I want you to imagine gymnastics with no saddle on top of a moving horse. Yesterday, my friend took part in a therapeutic horsemanship demonstration in Renton. She shared her story, and she showed on horseback how she has gained strength and freedom that she thought she had lost forever. My friend's story reminds me of how Jesus sees what is possible and good for us, and he calls us out to try it. He can be a tough coach, but he knows what he's doing, and he wants to restore us, to make us strong, and to give us freedom that we thought we'd lost. Based on the new and living way that Jesus has opened for us and his ministry as our high priest, 
the writer to Hebrews says, so let us think about ways we can spur one another on toward love and good deeds. The word is better translated provoke. Provoke one another. It's got that kind of bold energy in that word. We need each other for this mutual provoking to happen. Together, we see farther. We see better. We can imagine ways to extend the kingdom that we wouldn't think of or dare try by ourselves. That's why we belong together. It takes courage to live boldly as a follower of Jesus, and sometimes we need to challenge and encourage one another to take that next step, to do what seems impossible. So I want to ask you, where is the edge for you? What looks impossible for you to go in that place? Is it a relationship that needs reconciling? Is there a cause for justice that stirs your soul? Is there a change in the way you spend your time and resources with your family or with others that that needs to happen? And you know what this is, but you're kind of afraid to go there. Where is this edge for you, the place that looks impossible? I encourage you to share that edge with someone you trust. Ask them to listen with you in prayer for what God is already doing and maybe inviting you and nudging you like Ginger does my friend to try this next thing. Next week I've seen the plan. Brandon is going to encourage us all to consider what it means to be a missional community as a church. I want you to ask yourself before next week, what might we do together? that is kingdom-shaped? What stretches our imaginations and demands the very best we have to give? Well, none of us knows what's ahead. Opportunities or barriers. But what we do know is that we have a high priest who has opened for us a new and living way. And he calls us to follow. Amen. Amen.